it's like my whole body is screaming. When it's good, I think it does feel like there's something bursting out of me, like out of my chest, out of, as if there's like a second self that's inside myself that bursts out and is like on the ceiling. So this is Jess. We go into who she is and why she's on the podcast right at the top. So I won't cover that. But what I will say is a couple of disclaimers. Jess suffers with fibromyalgia. I ask her how to pronounce it within the first two minutes, then proceed to mispronounce it for the rest of the app. If you want to play a drinking game where you take a shot on every time I garble the word, feel free to get duffed on me. I'm so sorry, I've got a soft G, what can I say? Also, uh, second disclaimer, we get into a chat about what a sex marathon is, how long a sex marathon needs to be to qualify as a marathon. And I have questioned myself throughout the last couple of weeks since we recorded it, thinking, am I really that lazy that I have so little endurance. In the past, I've definitely had longer sex than I admit to in our chat. (sighs) Have I? Do I? Look, I'm in a long-term relationship. You get to a point where you just don't necessarily need to attend to each other for longer than it takes to bake a jacket potato. Do you know what I mean? Is that a bad analogy? Because it actually take quite a long time to bake if you're doing them right. Maybe not. Maybe it's the perfect one for exactly that reason. Okay, I'm not here to tell you how to bake a jacket potato or how long to have sex for. If you're having sex during this pandemic, congratulations. I've hit an absolute wall this week. Who hasn't? Jess is a tonic. I will say that. Great link fantastic work Helen she gives you all sorts of reasons to be hopeful in this situation and others I'm excited for you to hear it if you haven't got to the point of sharing this podcast with anyone yet what are you up to I think before I started making one I never even considered reviewing a podcast online yes I'm one of those and now that I make one I realize how important it is and I am encouraging you deeply to not be former me give us five stars on itunes write a review rate us wherever you listen share it with a friend or five thousand i will drop all of jesse's socials in the episode notes as per she's top quality on instagram i realized after this conversation she's not actually technically an influencer but uh seems quite pivotal to my social media landscape which suggests or at least a friend said to me afterwards means I'm a stalker. I stalk her. (laughs) I didn't think that was the case. I'm still questioning it, as you can hear in the way that my voice is going upwards. Why does the intro always end with a massive truth bomb from HD? Oh, goodness. I'm also going to drop in some info about fibromyalgia charities, information sources, plus the book that I discussed by Gabby Jackson, the Guardian journalist called Pain and Prejudice. It's a brilliant read. I would highly recommend it. I think that's everything. Yes. Oh, I know that you can bake a jacket potato in two minutes in a microwave. I don't have one, don't at me. Love ya! Here's Jess. Jess, I don't know how to introduce you. I'm also so intrigued by so many of your potential titles, like queer writer slash librarian. I just said librarian incorrectly as well, which makes me sad. But it sort of sounded like I'd said librarian, as in you bring libations, which in some ways you do, (laughs) to queer feminist literature. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether I can even call myself a writer anymore, because I haven't really written anything in about two years. 
I'm, I've cut down my hours now because of my fibromyalgia. So hopefully I'll be able to have some energy to do that because it's just been a case of getting this job in the library, loving it, thinking that can support me to do my writing, but then kind of being quite unwell, not knowing why, and only managing to sort of do my work and nothing else outside of that. So I moved to Brighton and wanted to leave everything behind. I really did do that. I left everything, you know, I completely just stopped doing anything that I did in London. And I think the time has come to sort of start reintroducing <laughs> the, you know, the the bits of myself in London that I still want to have. So interesting that you introduced it already. And I'm really pleased you said it because I've read it so many times, the word fibromyalgia. I didn't know how to pronounce it for ages. In fact, weirdly, my sister's a clinical psychologist and she runs a fibromyalgia clinic, which is why I knew that I had it. Because I just, I I don't know what I thought, really. I think a lot of it was dismissed as mental illness because you do get chronic pain and things Mm. with PTSD. And um, it was her that said to me, I'm really, I'm really certain that you've got fibromyalgia. You should go and see a rheumatologist. But yeah, I've been saying all different things. But yeah, it's, it's fibromyalgia. And it's similar but not to chronic fatigue syndrome. Is that right? Yeah, it's very similar. In fact, they're almost indistinguishable and they have so much overlap that it tends to be, it depends who you see, what diagnosis. My understanding is that it often depends what kind of clinician you see as to what diagnosis you get. Um, And certainly I experience fatigue as much as I experience pain. I think there's very little research and very little kind of idea about how to treat chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia so it's sort of been a journey of finding what works for me and trying to adapt my life around it. I've just read a fascinating book I told you about it I think called Pain and Prejudice which is by an Australian Guardian journalist and it's all about medical bias as in like towards the kind of white male uh, straight body as being the norm and then a lot of different disorders illnesses that affect women either in ways that are dissimilar to the ways they affect men or that only affect women or primarily affect women are really under-researched under-funded because things only get funding when they become issues for straight white men and uh, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome come up a lot because the journalist her kind of starting point is that she suffers with endometriosis and then she starts to kind of look wider and think about a lot of the syndromes that can cross over with endometriosis and people to have multiple disorders that link in with endometriosis. And with things like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, there isn't a clear understanding of what's causing it and how it can be fixed. And so often people are either misdiagnosed or dismissed, quite often dismissed. And so how has that been to be on the receiving end of that system and to still be able to be to be with your body if people are saying to you you're presenting in ways that don't that we don't recognize or there's nothing wrong with you I don't know if that's happened to you but yeah I mean it has my whole life really and I think it's interesting because I almost cancelled my appointment with the rheumatologist who diagnosed me Mm. because I said to my girlfriend I'm fine now you know there's nothing wrong with me I was just I felt like I was being hysterical and that's very much the way that I've, I think I've been made to feel by 
med- a lot of medical staff is that I'm being dramatic and seeking attention. The fibromyalgia got diagnosed after my health really deteriorated when I had an ovarian torsion in March. Um, I was walking home from work and I was suddenly in extreme amount of pain. And what mm. happened is I had a huge cyst on my left ovary and it had got so big that the ligament holding the ovary up twisted um, three times. The cyst mm. burst and my Douglas pouch, which is an area of the body I didn't know existed, but apparently <laughs> I've got name, one. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, is it named after someone called Douglas? I don't know. It must it be. Must Come be. on. Um, Otherwise, it could be their dog. <laughs> Maybe it's their dog. Douglas the dog. That filled up with blood and I was in absolute right. agony. Um, I managed to crawl into an Uber and get myself to A&E and I was vomiting up on the floor of, of the emergency department, shaking. I couldn't, I could barely tell anyone what was wrong with me. And um, I saw a, a, a doctor who, was, who looked about 12 and he said that I got cystitis <laughs> and sent me oh. home. Oh so, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I was begging uh, this nurse. I said, I haven't got cystitis. I'm, there's something really, really terrible is happening to me. I f- I've never been in so much pain in my life and no one believed me. So I had to go home and then I came back at about five o'clock in the morning, um, having spent all night sort of shaking in my bed. And eventually they took me seriously. But I had all sorts of nurses come up to me with with their sort of take on what was wrong with me. One nurse said, oh, you've just got your period, love. Um, (gasps) Another said, what have you taken? What have you taken? Thinking I'd taken an overdose. And it was was such a frightening experience because I knew that something really terrible was happening to me, which it was. So fascinating that two different nurses could come up to you with such wildly divergent yeah. Uh, diagnosis like you must be you must have had an overdose given your given the way you responded yeah, yeah. and then someone else is like mm, you must just be having a really bad period which says a lot about the ways in which women are just expected to get on with pain yeah. like if the way you were reacting vomiting on the floor writhing around in pain and advocating for yourself saying this is really unusual for me mm. was um possible to be dismissed as just like oh love you've got bad cramps yeah it says so much about how much Mm. torture we're expected to just put up with because it's part of menstruating yeah yeah Yeah. and then afterwards when I kind of I I had my ovary removed and I started to recover from the operation and I felt that I wasn't really recovering and it had been a number of months and Mm. I was still very very tired and I'm usually a very active person. I seem like a hyperactive child a lot at work. People don't understand <laughs> where I've got my energy from. And I'd gone from kind of going for long, long walks in the downs, doing 10K runs to really struggling to just go and get my groceries. And yeah, I, I, I'm quite lucky in that my GP took me seriously quite soon. But there was a period of time where it was dismissed as just my hormones and they gave me estrogen, thinking I was potentially going through a bit of a, a men- an early menopause. They couldn't test my hormones at that time because we were in lockdown. Mm. So I was given estrogen um, and it seemed to get better for a while and then it got worse again. So I went to see a rheumatologist probably about four months ago now. So in terms of timeline, has that been the last 
two years or so what you just described there? No, that's just been this year. So I started to notice symptoms over the last kind of, if I really think about it, probably over the last five years. (sighs) But I didn't recognise them as, as an onset of fibromyalgia until it got to a point where I couldn't get out of bed. And that was when I I knew that there was something that wasn't just PTSD, that Mm. there was something else that was physical. Um, Mm. Although there is a big link between trauma and fibromyalgia. And I'm very interested in the way in which trauma shows up in your body and about the connection between physical and mental health, which I've been reading a lot about. And I think that's been really helpful in taking ownership of my recovery. So often the reason why people are uh, dismissed as being hysterical, which is like a really historical way of dismissing women's symptoms, right, is because it's seen as being all in their head. And so if, in fact, something you're suffering with affects your body physically and as a consequence affects your mind and then there's a feedback loop that's created, so the physical symptoms are exacerbated by the anxiety or the concern that's causing your brain or the stress and then that goes back and forth like hitting back and forth like a pinball machine then it is true that it's occurring in your mind as well as in your body so in a way being dismissed as hysterical it's quite easy to fall into the trap I think of thinking I am being hysterical yeah I have because I do feel a bit a bit loopy yeah yeah I think so and also pain is created in your brain pain isn't created in your body and Mm. and so it is all in your head and that can be really frustrating (laughs) because if sometimes I'm in extreme pain and I think my brain is just creating this there's nothing wrong with my muscles my joints and my muscles are physically fine there is physically nothing wrong with me my nervous system is oversensitive in the same way in which sometimes you know with trauma you experience noises as much louder than they are you feel oversensitive to the world and tiny things can maybe trigger a meltdown and it's Mm -hmm. just the same but but physical and um the diagnosis has been really helpful for me in being able to seek help at work feeling like I'm able to advocate for myself, asking for what I need and feeling less hysterical. But it's interesting to me that I see that as a a more valid excuse or reason um, for taking time off work, for example, than I do if I'm struggling with my mental health, because it's one and the same. And Mm -hmm. yet I would never feel able to say, sorry, I need to take some time out. I'm feeling really triggered. Absolutely not. (laughs) But if it's physical pain, I feel able yeah. to advocate for myself in that way. I think also we should just reiterate. So saying at the library. Yeah, the library. <laughs> I have yeah. such a lovely image of you when you said earlier, I used to be really hyperactive. Yeah. And um, everyone at the library was like, everyone at work, you said, was like, wow, how can you be doing so much? I just imagine this kind of fairy like buzzing around the library, <laughs> putting books away. Did you, did you, did you really want these? Do you know yourself? How well do you know so if you're able to say at work, I can't do this because I'm, I have fibromyalgia, how does that then map onto your relationships and your relationship with your girlfriend, but also with yourself even in terms of 
getting frustrated? I think it's really affected my sex life. I mean, orgasms are easy for me, uh, are too mm. easy sometimes. Um, I, I've That's never had a break. <laughs> yeah. So the first time I had sex with my girlfriend was the, the night before lockdown number one. And we moved okay. in together the next day. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. So it was really a very classic lesbian U-Haul, um, which I think was quite common during lockdown one. Um, we were friends before that, but it became... Did you say U-Haul? U-Haul. Yeah, U-Haul. So I've never heard that phrase before. Ah, it comes from American trucks, U-Haul Yeah, I trucks. wondered. Yeah, <laughs> and it just means basically the classic queer moving in very quickly, which, I mean, it wasn't really U-Haul because I kept my flat and I've moved back there now and it was always right. a temporary thing. So the U-Haul element represents you like bringing trucks worth of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and which I kind of dumping did. dumping it. Right. <laughs> Boris made the announcement and we got in the car, went back to my flat and I packed two suitcases and just moved in. And is that because you'd been friends before and there'd been something bubbling up anyway? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we both live alone. So I think um, neither of us were working at the time. I was still recovering from my operation and also was then furloughed. And Sarah was a student nurse and she was kind of had a period of time when she wasn't doing a placement and the first time we we had sex I I came after about 30 seconds I was fully clothed just from rubbing against her leg and I was crippled with embarrassment I felt like a 14 year old boy and I thought I, I was like I've really messed this up she's never gonna <laughs> she's never gonna want to have sex with me again so that's kind of how easily uh, orgasms come to me and it's always been like that so and this is when you're still recovering from an operation major surgery yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I'm um, sorry to laugh but you're such a jammy bitch <laughs> I know I know and I do I, honestly and I think particularly with feminine women I have this feeling inside of me where I feel so overwhelmed because I just think they're so pretty and I feel like a 14 year old boy who is like losing his virginity like still every time been together almost a year and I'm still just like mesmerized by her I mean there's probably been one time where I struggled to orgasm with my fibromyalgia because I've taken a lot of codeine I think it's affected my sex life more in that physically sometimes I'm just too weak to do the things that I want to do mm-hmm. and that feels really difficult for me I've sex has always been a really important part of my life it's part the part of the relationship that I feel is easiest Mm. and I feel like I don't need to worry about anything because I know what I'm doing like this is my area I can take ownership of this and I feel confident sexually and with my fibromyalgia this has been the first time really that I felt I haven't felt sexy um I felt like an invalid I felt Mm. old I felt like, oh, I can't be in this position because it's hurting me. And, oh, I've lost my sex drive today because I'm in so much pain. Or we're going to have to stop because my neck is seized up. And I Mm. know that if I carry on, that's going to cause me a flare up of pain for two or three days. 
So it is frustrating because it feels like my mind and my body are in two different places. And so in my head, I'm like, yeah, I want to have a four hour sex marathon. And my body (laughs) is like, no, I want to be in fetal right now. I don't want to do anything. So for me, for me, Uh, I don't think I've ever had a four-hour sex. Actually, I I lie. I might once. There was a guy that I got with after a Wiley concert, and he was a personal trainer. He kept telling me during the sex, and the whole session was like, and I say session quite deliberately. I was. It was like probably he was maybe like the third person I've ever had sex with in my early early twenties. It was a one night stand, understandably, like because it was exhausting. The whole thing <laughs> felt like I was being put into positions and like um yeah, it was a workout. So that was quite long and deeply dissatisfying. But um that's the only example I can really give of of a, of a sex that's taken I would say over an hour now I know that says a lot about me I just it's just an observation that you're going from a place of like maybe having quite an elaborate exciting sex life to start with to then yeah. as you say feeling like an old person who who doesn't want to do anything other than kind of sit in a chair and read yeah so is is that right would you say that your sex life was uh, enviably glorious yeah yeah people always <laughs> say i should write a book about my sex life because i have so many stories <laughs> but people at my drama school who didn't go there when i went there yeah i remember them coming up to me in theater you know soho theater bars being like oh i know you you were that girl who had like a threesome in the tutorial room which i never did there were two different things that got merged into one um so <laughs> <laughs> i think sex has been almost an addiction for me um, through my life. You know, I would leave the cinema halfway through a film if I got a booty call. Everything revolves around that, which I don't think is healthy. And I think I've sort of moved on since then. I don't have four-hour sex marathons every time I have sex. (laughs) But yes, it's been quite a difficult process of having to really adjust my sex life and adjust my expectations of myself uh, and kind of rethink and redefine what good sex is Um, because I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform and to be like you know if I don't go down on my girlfriend for two hours I'm not doing enough you know Mm. and I'm bad in bed and actually good sex doesn't have to be about having eight (laughs) orgasms and (laughs) having a group of people you know it doesn't have to be that I think I was trying too hard I feel like you would be knackering to have sex (laughs) I think I would be crying begging like honestly it's enough it's enough I'm yeah. done. I promise you I'm done. <laughs> Can I ask you about this relationship you're in with Sarah? Because yeah. Sarah's trans. I just wondered if that element of her experience has been interesting for you. I guess you're both holding space for each other because you're both in places where you might be exploring kind of new sides of yourselves given like what you've been talking about and yeah and I don't know Sarah's situation well the girl that I was with before Sarah was also trans uh, and I have been in sort of sexual relationships with non-binary people and trans masculine people and I think dating trans people 
or people who are just queer in general has allowed me, it's given me permission, I think, to explore my own gender, which I've been doing this year. Oh, yeah, I've seen that because you're amazing haircut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I cut off all my hair, which I'd been wanting to do for years and was too frightened to do. And I think being with people who are so confidently themselves and so unapologetically themselves in a world that is saying it's kind of not okay Mm. to be who you are at the Mm. moment, especially in this country, that's the message, Mm. Mm. is so inspiring. And yeah, I think I have suppressed my own masculinity for all of my life because I've not seen it as something that would be accepted or attractive. Yeah, it's been really, really cool to be able to explore that this year. And I think also the lockdown and COVID has given me permission to do that because Mm. it was just me and Sarah. I mean, I've pretty much just seen Sarah and I think having that safety of having someone who, um, I mean, Sarah won't give me any indication about how she would like me to dress or be which I found quite frustrating at first because I I just wanted to be like oh I want to be how you want me to be like Mm -hmm. you know and and I I always found myself dressing for other people or presenting myself in in a way that I thought would make people fancy me whoever I was fancying at that time I was like I would try and work out what kind of person they wanted and then be that person and Sarah refused to give me any indication about how she wanted me to present because she genuinely doesn't care she loves me for who I am and Mm -hmm. that was terrifying but also gave me such an opportunity to explore a side of myself that yeah I just I didn't even really know was there. When you say you've been exploring your more masculine side what's that looked like or felt like? It's weird because Since I was probably, I remember it was drama school, so I must have been about 20. I started having sexual fantasies about having a a penis. And that's been kind of my main, my go-to masturbation material is I have a dick. And I never really thought about it. I just thought like, oh yeah, like all girls think about having dicks. Like that's just a normal thing, right? And it wasn't until I kind of, you know, was having queer sex and I had the opportunity to have a dick because, you know, I can do that. That led to me thinking about my gender in general. Um, I don't think I'm probably as masculine as I've been presenting recently because I think I've really swung into like being <laughs> like presenting in quite a butch way. And I think now I'm swinging a little bit back to being like, okay, I've explored that being really masculine and I don't think I'm probably quite there. But is it footch? Is it femme butch? I, I've, always, I've always said I'm footch. Which is such, I love that as a word. It yeah. sounds like... When your welly gets stuck in a puddle and it doesn't get out. Like, it sounds like that sound. I know it's squelched technically, but I think footch is better. Yeah, that is a really, yeah, it's a really good way. Um, but the feeling is the same. I've always felt genderqueer. And it's interesting that when my presentation changed, people took that seriously. Whereas mm. previously, if I'd expressed to anyone like, oh, yeah, sometimes I feel a bit butch or a bit like a gay boy, people would just be like, ha, 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 ha. But like, as soon as I cut off my hair, people are like, oh yeah, tell me about that. Like, I'm taking that seriously. And I think sometimes, um, I think I almost wanted to present in a very masculine way for a while so that I was seen 
because uh, I think people can be quite dismissive. Um, and pe- I think particularly people who are not queer think that like being non-binary or being genderqueer is all about like fashion statements and the way that you mm. look. And it's not at all, not, you know, non-binary can look like anything. I think there's a pressure to match your gender identity with a gender presentation that is androgynous or that is expressing something that is internal really and I'm also constantly aware of like the privilege that I have to explore my gender presentation without risk of harm because firstly you know I'm white and middle class I live in Brighton and I'm assigned (laughs) I love that that's the end of that (laughs) (laughs) and I'm assigned female at birth if I was someone who is perceived to be a man Mm -hmm. and I'm exploring my gender presentation with makeup and wearing dresses society views that in a very different way and I Mm. wouldn't be able to walk down the street and not be harassed but as someone who is still perceived to be a woman essentially a woman with short hair I don't really get any shit for it yeah so it's really interesting that like I think women expressing masculinity tends to be a lot more um not always, but tends to be a lot more acceptable. I really liked what you said about Sarah. The fact that Sarah was so powerfully herself mm. allowed you to feel that you had the space to be to explore yourself and also to to be more connected during sex. I think that's yeah. a really fantastic statement to be able to make about any relationship, regardless of who you're with. Yeah, yeah. I I, I really think that. Sarah is the first person who I've had sex with where I'm not in some way performing a role. Before Sarah, I haven't really been in a relationship since I was about 20. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, it's always just in bodies clashing and like <laughs> powerful explosion of like physicality. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult at first because she she is a lot more emotional uh, with, with sex she she mm-hmm. tends to have sex with people that she already has an emotional connection with which is the opposite for me you know when I when there's an emotional connection I'm like oh bye um I, I like sex to just be purely bodies but that can't happen with someone who you love and um yeah it was quite quite frightening and there were moments where it felt like too much it's not the physical sensation that's too much it's the emotion yeah yeah and the physical sensation tends to happen almost more easily when I disconnect emotionally. One of the reasons I think that sex became kind of addictive for me is it took me out of my head. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting talking to people who have difficulty orgasming and they always say the same thing, I'm too much in my head. And I feel like one of the reasons I sought sexual experiences so fervently is because I wanted to get out of my head Um, Mm. And it allowed me to do that because the body, the feeling of being in my body was so much that I didn't have to think. And it was one of the one of the few times where I didn't feel worried or, you know, I was just purely in my body. It's very similar to getting into the cold sea for me. I've said before on this podcast, the day after I actually had my first orgasm in Brighton Ah. and um, the day after the morning after I was on my own and I went for a swim in the sea. And it just felt like everything coming together in terms of like this pure sensation, just the cold tingling. I love it. I love cold water swimming, especially in the sea. Because of the motion as well, you're overpowered by something that is 
beyond you that is yeah. always going to be a much greater force than you and yeah. I love giving up to that giving myself me over too. to that me too yeah yeah it's very powerful <laughs> very powerful send that off I need a way how has having an orgasm interacted with fibromyalgia is it a moment of release still it it is a pain relief it does it does does relieve pain um Mm. I have to say when I have a very bad when I have very bad pain I don't tend to want sex I used to joke that you know I'd I'd have a virus and I'd still be horny. And so it takes quite Which a lot. Which in these times is a, a damning indictment of, of you as a person. <laughs> just willing to spread it. <laughs> it's um, you. It's all the guidelines. All the guidelines. <laughs> the new guidelines that need to be introduced to get this virus under control. Oh, God. When it's kind of mild to moderate, I can, I can have sex. There was one time recently where I couldn't come. And it was probably the first time in my life that I, apart from, you know, sometimes we've all, all had those experiences when we're with a kind of a, a boy and he doesn't really know what he's doing. And you just mm. think, oh God, this isn't going to happen at all. Obviously, Sarah was doing everything right. She really knows my body. I, I couldn't come and I was, and we were both so shocked because I, ne- I mean, <laughs> usually it's like, I'm like, don't touch me there because I will come immediately. I really have to do everything to try and slow down the the point before orgasm because it, it, it happens too quickly, usually more more quickly than I, I want it to. But yeah, it, it was really just not coming, and um, and I was in pain, and I think it was it was because of the pain, because I could feel the pain more than I could feel the sensations of the mm-hmm. sex. Yeah, that that was taking over, um, and it was it was really yeah, it was really frustrating, and also made me feel. Again, like yeah, like an invalid, yeah, um, and not and not sexy, yeah. So Sarah's a very emotionally intelligent person and has taught me so much about communication. She makes me feel very safe in in all as- all aspects of our relationship, including sex. And I felt safe enough to explore things sexually and like otherwise, but. I haven't been able to in previous relationships because we have so much trust. And mm. um, I, I think the the difficulty has been in times when I've been really unwell and she's been looking after me. And that makes me feel like I'm being parented or that there's a sort of carer dynamic, which mm-hmm. is difficult to feel sexy in. Yeah, if there's trust in a relationship and there's space for people to be honest... It doesn't really matter about where you're, well, I was going to say it doesn't really matter about where you're coming from, but often if people have been through things that are quite challenging and force them to really look at themselves and to do some work in terms of who they are, who they want to be, you, having had that experience yourself, you then are able to make space for other people. Yeah. I've certainly found that in my relationship with my boyfriend, for sure, he's given yeah, he's made lots of space for me and I think has only been able to do that, has had those kind of skills because he's been through some stuff himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I really hope Sarah writes a book about her life. I'm not going to give you her life story, but it's abs- it's really sure. it's really fascinating and I find her so inspiring as a person because she has every reason to feel bitter 
and angry and she doesn't. She has so much love for so many people and she is so kind and she has every reason not to be um, because the world hasn't always been kind towards her. And that inspires me to find that in myself because I can feel I'm quite a bitter bitch. I can, I can find, (laughs) I can feel my, I can feel myself, especially with this fibromyalgia, sometimes getting really woe is me and feeling like, God, it's just not fair. What have I done to deserve this? Like, I just want to be able to go for a walk, really simple things, you know. I just want to be able to work in a library and for that not to cripple me because I'm so tired all the time. Um, I really want quite simple things in life. Feeling, like allowing myself to just feel those feelings, but then love people and be kind to people anyway has been so healing. And yeah, I don't know how I would have got through this year without her really. And you want me to with my elbow. Okay. That's actually a perfect place to ask you about what for you an orgasm feels like. And also feel free to uh, describe them across your sexual life because it sounds like they might have changed yes quite significantly yeah so from when I was 15 to 25 I could only come through clitoral stimulation and that for me has quite a different sensation from um the orgasms that I have when I'm penetrated Mm -hmm. and so I just accepted that I could only have like clitoral orgasms and they tend to go they they sort of on a graph they go up and then down when I was 25 I had my first orgasm through penetration and that feels a lot more intense and a lot more sustained I mean I think they're like snowflakes I think all orgasms for me feel different mm-hmm. someone who I slept with once said that I come so hard it's like my whole body is screaming and that I think describes it very well. It sort of feels to me when it's good. Sometimes I have orgasms and I think, really, was that <laughs> was that it? But um, some, when it when it's good, I think it does feel like there's something bursting out of me, like out of your chest, out of my chest, out of just like um, as if there's like a second self that's inside myself that bursts out and it's like on the ceiling. You did some arm gestures there that people won't be able to see, but it was quite biblical. It was like <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. second coming. <laughs> it is very, very biblical. But yeah, it does feel like quite a spiritual experience, I think. Yeah, mm. and quite kind of cathartic. I often cry afterwards or I have hysterical laughter, which is quite embarrassing when it's with someone new. But it does feel like such a release. God, no wonder you're addicted to them. (laughs) So that was Jess. I told you she was a pick-me-up, didn't I? If you want to contribute to the making of this podcast, please pop us some pounds, pennies, dollars, whatever you've got to spare in our ko-fi, ko-fi.com forward slash Helen Duff. This episode was edited by the brilliant Daisy Grant and the podcast is produced by me, Helen Duff. Lorna Treen and Daisy Grant. I'm doing an improvised comedy gig this Wednesday. I run a gig called Makers of Meaning, where we improvise cast and crew interviews around a real film this month. It's Yentl, directed by, co-written, produced,
produced and starring Barbara Streisand. Each month, we, that means me and a bunch of non-binary and women improvisers, improvise around a film that has been made by a woman, either written, directed or produced, pre-2000 and we have a lot of fun tickets for that can be found at the same link that i put out with all of the podcast stuff the link tree and you would be very welcome it's free we invite contributions afterwards but it's open to all it's on zoom and it also goes out on facebook live on the makers of meaning facebook page so we will see you there 7 30 on the 17th of february and it's every month so next month is the 17th of march the following is 14th of april at infinitum well until the pandemic eases then we'll check out what we're doing on the live gig circuit okay love you listening love having you to make this for and with that in mind we are already gathering our guests for season two we've got some bangers in the tank booked already but if you have people in particular who you think ah that person is a really interesting insight on orgasms and has an experience that we haven't necessarily covered yet it would be really cool to hear from you bearing in mind that we still have a fair few episodes to release for this season super Fantastic, lovely stuff. Have a good week and be kind to yourself. Thank you.